Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 46 of the Savoir Rakus Club. I'm your co-host, Mary, and tonight I am joined by the only other person on the planet that agrees with me that Benjamin Gates is way cooler than Indiana Jones, Darren Weeks. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's going to get the birds chirping. <laughs> I told so you I, I prepared. I, I agree with you. Hey, you did well. You did well. You did well. How are you? What's I'm good, going thanks. on with you? How are you? And you literally... Um, it's great. I'm... <laughs> I'm sitting outside today, Mary. It's a nice house. I have to be inside. The snow in New England has finally melted. I'm sitting outside. <laughs> and I have it's to fantastic. Be, I have to be inside because it was raining earlier and I didn't feel like hauling home. And plus you got that whole ankle bracelet thing. I, whatever. It <laughs> it's okay. It's okay to be inside. It's okay to be inside. But you know what? It's a great day to be outside. It's a great day to be alive. Life is great. Yep. We are sitting outside. We're coming into that prime Civil War campaign season. We are. We're coming. We're approaching the weekend of the Battle of Gettysburg. We're approaching the end of the Siege of Vicksburg. Today, of course, is the day of the Lincoln Conspirators' announcement of their trial when mm-hmm. Mary Surratt and the gang were found guilty. And we could talk about that later on at some point. But we're coming into real history time. So this this is a history nerd like us for the Civil War. This is approaching Christmas Day. So we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about over the next couple of months. So it's good to see you're in a quasi-mood today for a Tuesday. <laughs> oh, I can't come too. You know? No, all right. Okay. Well, okay. Well, let's get started. What are you drinking tonight? Well, because I'm hanging with you, I'm drinking a beer called Big Cranky. <laughs> okay. Which is the most appropriate thing of all time. That's and fair. since I didn't know you were going to say that intro the way you did, yep. I'm drinking out of my favorite all time beer glass. It's my national treasure beer glasses here at the wall on one side. It has you. I'll seeing I rather on, yeah. on the other side that a friend of mine gave me a couple of years ago, and I'm going to appreciate that forever. So, what are you drinking? I am drinking um, Collingwood Freestyle Tropical Thunder, Tropical Thunder IPA. I couldn't find any beers that were like kind of Vicksburg related, and I am drinking it out of my Uncle Blingy mug. Appropriate because very appropriate. He is going to be in this episode probably quite a bit. We will be talking about him. Well, John, but, I thought John Park was. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, before we started recording, Darren started asking me about John Park in reference to the Battle of Raymond. And of course, he's not really part of it. So I started freaking out thinking I'd missed something in my research. And I spent hours researching this. Probably a little bit too much about Raymond. But anyway, Raymond, not, a, not a good idea to tease you on a Tuesday. It certainly oh, is. It was funny. I'm going to laugh about it now. Okay. We're episode 46. Um, this is part three of our Vicksburg discussion, which we began discussing it back in January with Chickasaw Bayou. And then we did part two a few weeks ago where we talked about um, Arkansas Post to the running of the gauntlet and the Union finally getting to Bruinsburg. So it's a campaign that's been going since late 1862. The last part of it's going to be a siege from May to July 4th. We were talking um, a little while ago that we probably could have done four episodes out of this. Probably We probably could have. Now, yeah. I think a lot of people, imagine more coming into that early July time, mm-hmm. where everybody's, you know, sugar plums dancing in their heads full of Gettysburg. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's understanding how important this Vicksburg battle is. And it's, it's, it's the other half of the coin on July of 1863. Everybody knows about Lee and Meade and Pickett's Charge and the rest of it. But Vicksburg was a gigantic thing. I've said many times, Gettysburg is the quarterback. Vicksburg is the offensive lineman yep. who do a lot of the work. And I think it's important to talk about that as we go forward with this today. So um, a three-part episode, at least, we could, we're going to get this done in three. It could have done certainly a lot more, and I think we still wouldn't do it justice. But I think no. So once again, like we always do, Mary, we jump into our share costume and <laughs> turn back time. If I could turn back time. And we go back to 
the end of episode two. Now, when we last left our heroes, they were sitting at Bruinsburg on April 30th, 1863. Grant had 17,000 soldiers on the Mississippi side of the river. They just completed the largest amphibious landing in U.S. military history at that time that would stay in the record books until D-Day in 1944. That's how important it was. You had troops resting on the Mississippi side of the river. Grant had planned the rest of that campaign pretty much uh, after achieving that goal. So he had all those those crappy tr- starts and stops to get to where he did. He finally got there, and he finally got to a situation where he had the opportunity to move. So we talked before about guys like Benjamin Grierson doing his thing. We're not going to go re- reinvent the wheel with this. But at the end of the day, on April 30th, Grant's sitting where he wants to be now. He's mm-hmm. on the Mississippi side of the uh, Mississippi River. He has a 13th Corps with John McLaren in the 17th Corps with James Burbsey McPherson, okay? He's formulating a plan now of what he wants to do. He, he knows he needs to find a central place that he can get his army together, and he basically can stage an area for an attack. And he's going to pick, pick a place originally called Clinton. And mm-hmm. he wants to get, get there, but he has to – there's a couple problems that he has. He sends McLaren in and McPherson. He, he wants him to take a couple of bridges at Port Gibson, and he wants to get up there and – now, one thing you can say about the Confederacy, Mary, is John C. Pemberton, he knew what was going on. He yep. knew it was up. He had an idea of what he wanted to do. So he's going to send General John Bowen's division. He's going to send them south to Grand Gulf, that's where they were, down to a place called Bayou Pierre River. And he wants to really engage Grant because he knows Grant needs to cross at that place. He knows if he's going to cross, he's probably going to cross there. Bowen is going to be outnumbered three to one by McLaren. Grant basically is happy to be there on the same side of the river, but he knows it was very difficult. Bowen knows he's up a creek, literally and figuratively at this point. So he wants reinforcement from Pemberton. He wants them quick, okay? He's going to end up falling back at that Bayou Pierre. We're going to, we're going to kind of briefly go with the beginning part of this. This mm-hmm. is just kind of the setup. He's going to burn the bridges there, and the Union's going to quickly rebuild them with pontoon bridges. It must have seemed pretty easy at that point for Grant because he had a really shitty months heading into this. So he's like, okay. I get to go to Bayou Pierre. I get um, I got three to one odds against John Bowen's division, who's going to be a good good fighting guy. We'll hear about him later. But he pushes him back pretty easily. So he's thinking, okay, this is a good opportunity. So Grant decides he's going to move towards Vicksburg. And, and this is where it's interesting. We're going to talk about this later, okay? He wants to move towards Vicksburg. No one else in Washington wants him to. Abraham Lincoln, we've talked about him. He's yeah. the president of the United States, Mayor. We've talked about him a few times, right? And Henry Halleck. They want him to head towards Port Hudson. They want him to help out the great Nathaniel Banks from yep. Waltham, Massachusetts, down there at Port Hudson. And Grant is like, well, A, I don't want to, and B, Bank outranks me. So if I go down there, I'm going to be fetching coffee for this guy. Yep. So he wants no part of that. So he's going to basically set up his own plan. He wants to go to Vicksburg, and he's going to come up with a plan to go ahead and do it. Yep. And that's where we go to Raymond, which is going to be one of these first battles that is fought. I jumped too far ahead. I have a tendency to <laughs> do just that. like that. The crater exploded. <laughs> oh my god! No, no, no. no. Um, but the, the, what's interesting? About, no, you're right. But what's interesting about Grab? But just set that up, though. He is going to go yep. to Raymond, but he he knows he's going away from the supply line. Right? Yep. And we talked a lot about supply lines when we did last week. We did Kennesaw Mountain with Sherman, right? And it's he knows that. He is going to have to live off the land. Now, this is pre-March to the sea, obviously. This is mm-hmm. way before that. 
So he's going to be concerned. And this is a big reason why Lincoln didn't want him doing it too. He didn't know if he had the ability to survive with his army. He's going to need to forage. And we, you know, we talked about that many, many times. He tells his army, you're only going to bring ammo and you're going to bring hard tack and you're going to bring coffee and you're going to bring Twinkies. And that's it. That's all you're allowed to bring. Okay. He wants to get between Vicksburg and Joseph Johnson's army, who he knows is sitting in a place called Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah. He tells McPherson, okay, he's in charge of the 17th Corps. He tells him very clearly, Burbsy, look me in the eye and listen to me right now that you're getting this. Here's the scoop, okay? You need to seek supplies off the fields as much as you can because you ain't got nothing. You're not going to have enough supplies to do anything. Also, time is of the freaking essence. You, your supplies are going to run out. You're going to have to move quick. And he knows he has to be Pemberton's Department of Mississippi and Louisiana. That's what they're called before his rations are gone. So he's going to have set up his guys with three-day rations to start, and he doesn't know how he's going to replace them. So he has to move quick. And as we see these battles like Raymond, we're going to talk more, mm-hmm. notice how quickly they come. We're not talking yeah. a week or two between battles. We're not going to a day or two. And that's important but to set up how this is going to be for Grant. Yeah, no, they're one after the other after the other almost. And I think one thing to, to mention here studying Raymond and Champion Hill is just as important as studying the siege itself, just like the whole campaign needs to be looked at. Because a lot of times when you think Vicksburg, you think siege. But this is the part where he's he's run the gauntlet. Grant's got to where he needs to be. He's still thinking, I can attack Vicksburg and take it. He doesn't know at this point that he's going to have to siege. But like Raymond is kind of the beginning of this. In He's basically, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly or not, it's almost like he's pushing Pemberton back to Vicksburg. Well, it, it's interesting because Pemberton, we, we all, let's all talk about him real quick. So Pemberton, he's sitting in Vicksburg and Joseph Johnson is sitting in Jackson. Now what's interesting about Pemberton, he's outranked by Johnston. Okay. So here's the scoop with them though. Johnston wants Pemberton to take his whole army, the whole damned army and go east and go chase Grant. That's what um, Johnston wants. Because he knows Grant's numbers are going to increase in time, and that and they will, as we show how they how they grow. But here's the problem: Jefferson Davis, who's also the boss of Pemberton, is telling Pemberton to stay in Vicksburg, so he has to feed two masters here. So he knows that leaving Vicksburg is going to be a gigantic gamble because you're going to have to leave local militia to defend it. Johnston, his boss, says leave it. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, says don't leave it. Yeah. So what does he do? He does both. He finds a way to do both. So he is going to get these two conflicting offers from his two bosses, as these orders, I mean. And what he's going to do, he's got five divisions sitting in Vicksburg, five. So he's going to say, well, I'm pissing somebody off, but I have to do both. He's going to take three of those divisions, okay? Those three divisions he's going to take with him are going to be uh, Carter Stevens and Forney and Bowen. And, when, uh, and what they're going to do is they're going to take them across the Chase Grant. Mm-hmm. He's going to leave the other two to sit back and babysit Vicksburg. Because in his mind, he's like, well, I'm going to get Grant, but at the same time, I'm defending Vicksburg. So I think I got my ass covered when we all get in trouble. I think that's kind of what he's thinking. As it goes on, Grant is going to try to, he's going to try to get up there. He wants to get to that staging point we talked about in Clinton. Yeah. So he sets his army up between two rivers, one called the Bayou River, the other called Big Black, which yep. we'll talk about later. Now, he has very little cavalry with him. Grierson has done his thing, and he's gone. Mm-hmm. So he has no one. So he sets himself up between these two rivers because it gives him a little bit of safety. He has a little bit of a buffer zone. He's got rivers surrounding both sides. 
He's going to put McLaren on his left. He's going to put Sherman in the middle. He's going to put McPherson on his right. And they're going to march towards your town of, Ra- of Raymond. Mm-hmm. Now, he wants to make it to Clinton because it's the ideal spot between Pemberton and Johnston. And we'll talk about why that's important later on. So as we get to May, May 12th, we see how these armies are going to react to his move heading towards Raymond. And what Pemberton does is he sends an infantry force under General John Gregg to go after McPherson's corps, which is headed towards Ra- Raymond. And as we said, McPherson's been told to go there to to start securing some supplies for the troops because, and Grant says, we must fight the enemy before our rations fail. As you said, time is of the essence here. Mm-hmm. Who Gregg is going to encounter, encounter is John A. Logan. So Black Jack mm-hmm. Logan is here, and he's one of the more probably aggressive fighters that McPherson has in his corps, and he's gonna, Greg's going to encounter him. Greg thinks mm-hmm. he's not up against that many. He doesn't realize it, and that's due to shockingly faulty intelligence that he gets. Greg decides to try and hold a crossing, so he puts his men and artillery near it. He's going to have two batteries on a knoll that rose above the road, and his infantry are hidden in a thick forest and in a vine-choked creek bed. So again, the terrain is going to play a factor in this too. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that's important to mention, okay, is John Gregg did not come from Vicksburg. He came from Jackson. Mm -hmm. And that's going to set up later on. So, as I said, of course, he's got false information on how many (laughs) troops he's going to be facing. He's about to come under, like, Black Jack's division, like all of them. And he's going to be outnumbered three to one. But McPherson in this fight at Raymond manages to mismanage it a little bit. He's not at his best in this. So the first attack is going to be led um, by the 7th Texas Regiment. These guys have been through a lot, and they are a hard fighting force. They're from Texas, right? So why not? They were captured at Fort Donelson and eventually exchanged, and their ranks were refilled to the point where they were able to be a fully Texas regiment again. Um, During Donelson, they do have 68 men killed and 218 wounded. And when they come back in they are going to be the ones that are going to be facing off and McFear- headed towards John A. Logan's division. Interesting history behind these guys, though. Um, they were formed in 1861. John Gregg was their first colonel. And it's going to be Hiram Granberry, who we mentioned last week in our episode about uh, Kennesaw Mountain. And he's also going to be one of the six officers that are killed at Franklin on November 30th, 1864. And he's going to be commanding them at Raymond. And the seven Texas are having to make their way through this really shitty terrain, timber, underbrush. They encounter the 20th Ohio. Colonel Manning F. Force of the 20th Ohio said that all at once the woods rang with a shrill rebel yell and a deafening din of musketry. And this is when the Battle of Raymond begins. They're gonna, the seventh Texas is gonna crush the Yankee line in several places and drive hundreds of them towards the creek bed. And the fighting becomes hand to hand. It's really brutal here. And that's one thing. Um, these are battles that don't get talked about a lot. They're very small battles, but they are horrific. Well, you fighting. mentioned the three to one odds. So this is Blackjack Logan's division, that third division. And he's going to be followed by John Stevens' brigade and Marcellus mm-hmm. Crocker's, the Crocker's Greyhounds. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys are going to be the ones who are going to be attacking. Greg gets pushed back. You know, Hiram Granberry, you know, say what you will about him. Hard fighting guy, spend a little time in the uh, as a state warden of the state of Massachusetts, yep. Fort Warren, Mary, in Boston. He's, He's got, got amazing time. hair. But you mentioned Cranberry Seven Texas. I mean, they they take a beat down though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got three hundred guys. You're gonna lose about one fifty, which is about fifty percent. Cranberry gets a lot of gets a lot of credit and a lot of discussion for this. But you got to talk about the Tenth Tennessee with this too, mm-hmm. Colonel Randall McGivrick, Right, this is a dude. Okay, he's he's leading his command. 
he's going to get shot in the chest with a cannonball. It's going to literally cut him in half in front of his troops. And there's a great, there's a good quote that I pulled out from a guy named Patrick Griffin of the 10th Tennessee. And he writes of this battle of Raymond watching his boss die. We have been under fire for, for 20 minutes when I heard a ball strike something behind me. It was the colonel. I knew he was going, and I asked him if he had a message for his mother. His answer was, Griffin, take care of me. But he did not live for five minutes. Now, being pretty much cut in half isn't going to let you live that long. But his troops were, were pretty busted up about that. Mm-hmm. And it just goes to show, to your point, that hand-to-hand carnage of what that was. Now, what's interesting with the Battle of Raymond is it was kind of like a little tremble on the way to the explosion of the volcano. Yeah. There were very low casualties on both sides. The Union had about 400. The Confederacy had about 500. So it was pretty even for the most part. But the bigger ramifications for the Vicksburg campaign was was going to be where Greg came from, and that's what's going to that that's what's going to make Grant wake up in the middle of the night and freak out. Yeah, there. And and the one funny story though is Logan is wearing an unmarked jacket because he doesn't want to be picked off by the sharpshooters. The sharpshooters are a thing in this whole campaign from start to finish, especially when we get to the siege. But Logan sees the men break and he tries to rally them. And he says, for God's sake, men, don't disgrace your country. Now, one man fighting here had fought at Shiloh, one of the 20th Ohio. And he said it was worse, like what he experienced was worse than anything he had experienced at Shiloh. Logan is said to have rode up to these men that are fleeing and with the shriek of an eagle, turned them back to their places. So he must have just, I don't know what he kind of noise he made, but they... They stood Sounds there. like it was an eagle. <laughs> they stood there. I'm just trying to imagine that. Logan screaming at them like an eagle, apparently. And they, they stood their ground until McPherson... He might have sang Hotel California. That's true. Good point. That's you good don't song. know. That's a good I'm just song. saying. Welcome to the hotel. No, I'm not going to. I won't subject no, our listeners to that. Please I don't sing. I won't. Call me maybe. What's, what's after an E rating? Anyway. <laughs> Reinforcements arrive, but it's too late. And this is the one thing that McPherson is criticized for in this battle is not getting the reinforcements up there enough. Now, funny thing is, is they break and run through the town of Raymond. And the women of the town had been expecting a Confederate victory. Greg was running his mouth off about it. And he's like, oh, yeah, we're, we got them. There's not that many of them coming. It's just going to be like a skirmish and we'll get them. We'll capture them. So the women had put out They had a picnic of fried chicken and lemonade because why not? We're in the South, right? And as the men of the 20th Ohio are chasing the rebels through the town, some of them are breaking like from the formation and they're going and grabbing this food and eating it. Because again, why not, right? I would too. I would go for (laughs) fried chicken. So by the end of the day, you have Greg losing this battle and his troops are in camp in the forest near the great, the town graveyard. And the next morning they're going to head back to Jackson but they're going to leave their wounded behind as they lay uncared for in the field. But because of the terrain in the area, McPherson decides not to pursue. And this is one of the reasons why Raymond is actually a really important thing to look at in this campaign, because it's actually what causes Grant to change what he's going to do here. said that although not a general engagement and scarcely mentioned in history, seldom in any engagement was the loss greater in proportion to the numbers engaged in the bloody field at Raymond. So the fighting was pretty horrific here. And the Union troops do end up pillaging the town. What freaked Grant out was how aggressive Greg was. And he knew Mm -hmm. he came from Jackson and he was aggressive. Grant now knows that there's a force in Jackson that attacked him that was aggressive. Now he's like, well, I don't want to go to Clinton. Clinton's not far from Jackson because I don't want to go to Clinton anymore and stage that attack. He goes, well, 
he realized at that point he had to deal with Johnson's army in Vicks, uh, in Jackson yeah. rather as first as soon as possible. So his plan's going to change a little bit of a milk run he's going to make. So before he knows he can go to Vicksburg now. He was kind of hoping maybe there would be a passive Joseph Johnson army that was going to stay behind. When Greg came at him, he realized that I'm going to have an aggressive army on my heels the whole time if I don't do this. So he knew he had to. Two days later, on the 14th of May, it's again, you see how quickly these come. This is how they are. Yep. And this is, again, due to those supplies. He has to rely on speed. Grant is going to arrive near Jackson, Mississippi. So a little bit east. He's at a McPherson's 17th Corps who's going to arrive from the northwest. And Sherman's 15th is going to come from the southwest. Now, Johnston had just arrived the day before on the 13th. He just got there. Yeah, and he, and he sends. But, and, well, and the funny part about it was, not to spoil the story, Mary, but he takes off. He runs. He pulls an O.O. Howard and takes off. <laughs> but he says later after the war that he felt he was too late to defend it. Yeah, so that's what he writes. Whose fault is that, though, right? Exactly. Well, that's what he writes to Davis. He gets there and he's basically like, we're fucked. We can't. We can't do anything. And then he's like, well, time to evacuate the dance floor because this can't be happening. So he's got 6,000. He, he has 6,000 guys, okay, which is probably the average Indians crowd size nowadays. He's got 6,000 guys, okay, and he doesn't know what Grant has. Grant's got 30,000, 40,000. He has no idea what he has, right? So he sees an impending shit show on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So he decides to withdraw and head north of Jackson. So, of course, he leaves John Gregg. Who's like, what? He leaves him behind with just fought at Raymond to cover his ass, his rear, as they vacate the dance floor, to your point. Yeah. What's funny, he tells Pemberton that he's going to help him stage an offensive when he had no intention of doing it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you, I'll come help you at work tomorrow. I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you I'm going to. Yeah. And he, to- he totally does. So the Battle of Jackson is going to be really, is going to be attacking the rear guard of Greg of that army. So 514 in a driving, horrific thunderstorm. Shit rain, yep. right? Thunderstorm, sleet, pouring rain. Who knows what else, right? Clowns. Oh, God, blowing around those clowns. Cows shark- flying around. I mean, real good chance of a <laughs> Sharknado, you know? <laughs> but McPherson is going to fight John Gregg as he covers Johnson's his rear. He knew McPherson, the rebel numbers were small. So he sends Marcellus Crocker's Greyhound Division to attack. Now, this is funny because the troops are going to be completely affected by the weather. They talk later after the battle how their cartridges were soaking wet. They couldn't fire. It was a big friggin' mess. Crocker does drive off Greg pretty easily because the numbers tell the story most of these battles. Meanwhile, old Uncle Blaney, William Sherman's 15th Corps, he's arriving from the southwest and he cruises in with no resistance. Yep. It's like when you drive into the city and there's no traffic and you can't believe it. Yep. That's what Sherman's thinking. He's approached by a local slave, and he says that the Rebs took off. They're out of here. The town is only defended by local people. So Sherman and his army arrive there. Okay, Obviously, their matches didn't get wet because <laughs> they decided to torch the town of Jackson. Going back real, real quick, the Battle of Jackson, it resulted in just a few. Like 300 U.S. casualties, maybe five or 600 Confederates, mostly captured, to be honest. Those casualties in the U.S. were mostly McPherson's guys. Like I said, they fought Greg. Sherman, for the most part, had a free pass. But in Jackson, Sherman's going to get there, and the 15th Corps is going to go on a frigging rampage. Mm-hmm. Now, we talk about Atlanta. You talk about Columbia. But what they did to Jackson, 
was pretty impressive what yeah. they did and no one talks about exactly. it exactly that's just... what i thought too when i was doing my <laughs> research like they get drunk <laughs> off whiskey so the other thing that happened is the rebels also set fire to keep the provisions from falling into union hands they set fire to it before they leave and that's very much like wade hampton um in columbia and i know that's still a little bit disputed today because sherman really lays the blame on thick to hampton in his memoirs but still like something very similar is happening here and again nobody talks about it it was a preview of things to come exactly so they're, they're destroying factories railroads all those things that you, they expect them to do but they're ransacking civilian homes so again this is quotation fingers against sherman's orders again like it always says a wink and a smile yeah, bullshit. but they're going to ransack these civilian homes much of the town gets torched and to your point the rebs burn some of it which is always a great excuse but who knows if it's exactly. true but at the end of the day jacks is going to get it's going to be pretty much in bad shape. And the but people Johnston... are pissed about it too. But the one good thing that Sherman does is like the families of factory workers whose places of work have been burned were ordered to gather at the Pearl River. And Grant had issued orders to Sherman to do this. And Sherman will distribute 200,000 rations to them to prevent them from starving. So I guess there, I mean, is, does... there is that, well, but still well, the it, people are pissed. It's re- it's re- it reminds you a little bit of Howard at Columbia. Exactly. With horses and the yep. gun. So, yep. so it's kind of like one of those deals where you just... You, you kick someone's ass and help them up afterwards. That's kind of yep. what he did. Joseph Johnson and, and, and Pemberton's armies are now cut off from each other. And that, that's why Grant did what he did. He wanted to cut them off. So now we can focus on John Pemberton's army sitting in Vicksburg, where he thinks is in Vicksburg. So now he has Johnson kind of pushed to the side. Now he's going to focus. So to, again, two days later, just two days later, no, no rest for the weary Mary, the 16th of May, Pemberton now, is going to start that thing I mentioned before. He's going to send those three divisions. He's going to send them east to deal with Grant's army. This mm-hmm. is Carter Stevenson, John Bowen, and William Loring we'll talk about. About 25,000 guys, give or take, right? They're going to come east as Grant is going west. And they're going to bump into each other at a place on the 16th called Champion Hill. Yeah. Now, Champion Hill is going to be the, the big battle in the Vicksburg campaign. It, it is, yeah. It's... And, and it's also as a battle of Baker's Creek. If you're a real nerd, you really want to study this crap, Mary. You can you know the backup names for this stuff. So there's interesting history behind Champion Hill, too. Is there? Yeah, there's it's so it's the part of the plantation owned by Colonel Sid S. Champion, who he's off fighting in the Civil War, obviously for the Confederates. He's with the 28th Mississippi Cavalry. And his wife, Matilda, and their three young children are at the plantation. And he really did he fears the Yankees. He had been at Deer Creek in the Yazoo Delta. And he writes to his wife, the Yankees are worse than the Goths and the Vandals in the Middle Ages. He tells them that they will steal Negroes, they will kill horses and mules, and they will burn houses. So this is all starting to sound a little bit familiar. This is starting to sound like 1864 with the March to Sea. And you kind of have to think, is this how the people of Georgia eventually you know, came to fear Sherman? Was it stuff like this that eventually filters down to Georgia from, from Mississippi, from Vicksburg? Well, um, when, you, when, you re- when you read like, you know... Dr. Rubin's book, right? Yep. And these other March to the Sea is is the truth is reality. Perception is truth, right? Mm-hmm. And these stories come out. And so when, when he does this thing later on, he's a demon for even starts. Yep, and he... so there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you know, um, you know, people people talk and and you don't have that information highway that we have now, but people did talk, right? Exactly. And perception was truth. And so you you know, the Mary Chestnuts of the world, and the people who wrote these diaries about Sherman. Certainly, they they were going on half truths, but there was there was some truth to it, though. Well, yeah, and the, the news had already got there 
so it's getting there before Uncle Blingy is even getting to Georgia, you know, and there's this reputation and it seems to start here during the Vicksburg campaign. Um, the other thing that Sid writes to his wife is that hard times are in store for us. Expect reverses. Nerve yourself for every emergency. Trust to God and you'll be prepared for it. Remember me kindly to all the Negroes and kiss all the children for me. So this is a guy who's also a slave owner as well. But this is where this fight is, is going to be. It's Stephen D. Lee who he's factored into this campaign so much. I think we've mentioned him in every episode. He's going to be posted on top of Champion Hill. And his mm -hmm. job is to watch for the Union column moving along the crossroads. And he soon sees them. But the problem well, is, is they about, see look, him too. What's important with Champion Hill, real quick, is to your point, it's a big height. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's 350 or so feet high. It's part of that ridge that separates Baker's and Jacob's, uh, Jackson Creek, those watersheds. You know, it's about halfway between Vicksburg and Jackson. From, from, to your point, from that hill, you can see almost everything. You yep. can see the whole the whole area. When Stephen D. Lee gets there, um, part of Car uh, Car Stevens' division, those Alabamans, he's going to spy with his little eye. To your point, those three approaching Union columns, and he's going to see that one that's going to be approaching that undefended left flank, and so it's going to create this battle. But so you think about ten o'clock in the morning on the sixteenth, Grant's going to order that attack, right? He's yep. going to order that attack on the ribs on that hill. McClernand's corps is going to attack on the left, and McPherson is going to be on the right. And by noontime, the Reb, the Union's doing they, they they they're hitting that Union that, that Rebel line by one o'clock. The Union, to your point, is going to get on top of that hill. Alvin Hovey's 12th Division, he's going to be off those Indianans, uh, yep. those 13th Corps from McClernand guys. They take and four guns as soon as they, they get are, up there. They, Carter Stevens' division is going to retreat. They're going to take off. They're going to friggin' run like goddamn hell. So at the beginning of the Boston Marathon at that point, <laughs> they're going to, you know, they're going to take that Jackson Road, that escape route. They're going to try to get that road. Now, this is where John Bowen's going to come in. So John yes. Bowen. Now, what's interesting is they're all slow to answer the bell here. So they're told to do it, but they're all like, okay. So John Bowen is going to do it, but and he's going to counterattack and he's going to slow that federal advance. He will take that, that champion hill to reinforce Carter Stevenson. But Bowen's men, again, are going to fall back because Peter Osterhaus, who is everywhere, apparently, is going to, uh, in his ninth division, from is, is going to counterattack. Now, he, this guy, I don't know why the hell he's on the coin, because Peter Osterhaus is in every battle. But what's interesting, this is where this, is where this battle, the champion hill gets fun for me, is William Loring's division. Yes. William Loring's division, he strikes me as a temp with a bad attitude. Oh, completely. Right? Yeah. He, he just like no, he takes orders okay. as guidelines. No, here's the thing with William Loring. He hates everyone. He hates Davis. He hates Stonewall Jackson. He hates the Rosewoods clown. I was just he gonna hates, say hates he hates Rosewood waiting a, he hates waiting a line at the Dairy Queen. <laughs> he, he he hates <laughs> this is a guy, he's that guy at the office who just hates everybody, right? So he would be my worst Loring. customer. Oh my god, he's everybody he's everybody I work with. But He's ordered to attack and retake Champion Hill. Now, you know what he does? He goes, mm, you know what? No, I don't think I'm going to do it. You know why? Because there's too many men in my front, so I don't think I'm going to do it. But eventually, he sits there. He's like that that, that gymnast with a pouty face. He finally yeah. does that. And he finally decides he's going to do it. He's going to advance towards the attack. He's going to sit there and say, well, I'm going to go from Boston to New York. But I'm going to go through Montreal and come through Buffalo yeah. and come through Pennsylvania in New Jersey. And come. He takes the most scenic route to get there. So by the time they get there, it's three days ago. Yeah. I mean, he that's he takes a long time and he keeps them out of the fighting. So while, while Loring's disappearing, he's doing his, his disappearing act, Grant is going to counterattack. He's going to force Pemberton to retreat. 
via that Raymond Road across that Baker's Creek, right? And the last rebel defense is going to be a guy named Lloyd, T- uh, Lloyd Thielman. He's just an interesting guy. Mm-hmm. So Thielman, he's from Claiborne, uh, Maryland. Okay, he he has a plantation called called the uh, called Rich Neck Manor. That's what it's called. That's where he grew up. Okay, so you can tell he probably vineyard vines clothes in his closet. <laughs> Mary, okay, and he's another guy, by the way, who spent some time at Fort Warren in Boston as a as a guest of the state of Massachusetts. Customer, <laughs> customer. Yeah, he spent some time customer. here on the old harbor. Okay, and he's told to hold the ground at all costs. So he's kind of that Charles Til- uh, Tilden of this area. Mm-hmm. So Tealman, you know, it's it, this is kind of a bummer story though. So his, you know, so his son is is in the battle as well. He ends up being ordered to go and run off with some sharpshooters. And so he goes and Tealman is going to is going to be killed. He's going to be he's going to be hit with a with a shell. He's going to he's going to basically die pretty much instantly. And it's going to destroy that entire, you know, that entire group that he's that entire brigade. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to bury him on the spot, but they didn't do it. They carried him by torchlight all the way back to Vicksburg. And his son came back and found that his father died. And he was a big part of the procession. Wow. He was a very, very popular guy who mm-hmm. died. So after Thielman gets killed, the Rebs are going to fall back to that big black river, which is going to set up the next hilarious thing for this battle. Now, Alexander Hovey's division is going to take the crest of the hill again. And you're talking guys like John James Slack's brigade, people like that. But now you can see Grant's got the Rebs on the run. So he's pushed them back now from Jackson. He's pushed them back all the way down to Champion Hill. He's pushed them back. Now they're going to try to set up that defense along the Big Black River. Mm-hmm. Now this is going to be their last real chance to slow Grant down. Yeah. It's not going to be much of a chance. This is going to be a situation where the, the Confederate Army is going to set up their last stand but it's a half-assed effort, as we'll find out as this goes on in this oh, battle. So. It, it is. And the one thing that, so after Champion Hill is fought and won by the Union, uh, Grant's going to write to Sherman that night. And he says, I am of the opinion that the Battle of Vicksburg has been fought. And he's also going to order Sherman to move north across the Big Black at a place called Bridgeport. And then Grant also wrote in his memoirs, while a battle is raging, one can see his enemy mowed down by a thousand or the ten thousand with great composure. But after the battle, these scenes are distressing, and one is naturally disposed to alleviate the sufferings of an enemy as a friend. This is kind of going to set up something that Grant does that we'll talk about in this episode. He's seeing a lot of bad shit right now, you know. Big Black River happens on May 17th, 1863. and May 17th. Now, what was the date of Champion Hill? May 16th. May 16th. So this is the next freaking day. Yeah. So it's like these okay. guys, no, no, keep in mind, these guys are fighting and they're having to get to the next place. So they're probably not sleeping as much and they're probably not eating very much. So you can just imagine how worn out all these troops, both the Union and Confederate are getting. So the Confederates, basically what this is, is the, the Union is going to be attacking the rear guard. And the year, the rear guard here at Big Black, um, as Pemberton is retreating back, he has left Bowen with his Missouri troops, Vaughn with his Tennessee brigade, and there's also the 4th Mississippi Infantry Regiment here. And for the Union, you have McClernand, who's got Eugene Carr and Michael K. Lawler with him. Mm-hmm. Bowen has been constantly bringing up their rear guard for Pemberton in this. And what happens is the Confederates are going to withdraw across the Big Black, and they're going to burn the bridges to prevent the Union pursuit. Well, they don't have... I mean, think about what they... They don't have much of a freaking chance. I mean, no. this general guys like Martin Green, Francis Cockrell, they get those inexperienced Tennessees under John mm-hmm. Vaughn, right? And you're talking about 5,000 guys, right? And they're going to hold on this oncoming Union army, right? So they're told to hold that, that defensive position. McLaren's 13th Corps 
is chasing them, right? And so the morning of the 17th, McLaren is going to approach Bowen's division on the, along the river near that bridge and to, to those places you hold, Carr, Osterhaus, uh, Lawlersburg. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about Lawler, that 21st, 22nd, 23rd, Iowa. Those are those Iowans. And, mm-hmm. and so they're going to end up, you know, in that situation where it's going to create that, you know, the battle of Big Black River. But it's going to be basic artillery at the beginning. And what's interesting about this, Mary, is Osterhaus, who I thought was a superhero, actually gets injured at this battle he does. by artillery. Yep. yep, he does. Right at the beginning. Now, this is where we talk about Lawler's Brigade. This is where those Iowans are the heroes of this. So, so Lawler's Brigade is going to advance. And they found some kind of location where they could advance and kind of either go undetected or not be hit. They're going to hit John Vaughn, those, those inexperienced Tennessee's line hard. They're going to, they're going to hit it harder than you hit the freaking liquor store on a Friday night. <laughs> and that line is going to break in about five minutes. They're going to go right through them. And the Rebs, a matter of fact, they get one volley off before they get run. Yeah. That's how bad it is. Francis Cockerell's his Missouri guys also they turn and take off, turn on their heels and, and Howard it, and they take off. <laughs> that whole left side of the Rebel line is collapsing. So that's and they're going to leave eighteen cannon on the field. Well, see ya. They're going to take off. They're going to in two part. They're going to burn that bridge. They're going to lose seventeen hundred guys, mostly you know mostly POWs and the casualties. Yeah. But it's going to be a gigantic loss. But Big Black was Pemberton's sniper was was their last real opportunity to slow Grant. And what's interesting is Loring, who must be still in line at, at the Small World ride in Florida, <laughs> wasn't able to come back because they got cut off. They were completely cut off now because the bridge is gone. And they ended up saying, you know something? The hell with this. They ended up going back to Jackson to hang with Johnston. Yep. So now you have Pemberton's missing an entire division that he probably could have used later. Yeah. So now he's with he's without Loring. So Loring is vanished. And now he can't get across, and he decides to go, you know, end up going back to Jackson. And so, he's lost those 17, 1800 troops as yes, well, exactly. like it, with the, that have been captured. Like he, he no. cannot, he can't afford to lose them. But the one thing Pemberton does here, and this is kind of, I don't know, it's a really dick move on his part, I think. He blames the troops. He's going to blame Bowen, Vaughn, and, and the 4th Mississippi. He's going to say, a strong position with an ample force of infantry and artillery to hold it was shamefully abandoned almost without resistance. Dude, well, it, your men have been fighting for a fucking week mm-hmm. like cut them some slack but now you're going to see the, the the retreat back to vicksburg you're going to see the army come back and there's a story of a, of a, a local vicksburg woman who has a diary okay i'm mm-hmm. going to read this quote okay yeah. it's a good quote but she writes she goes by three o'clock p.m the rush of the retreat began i shall never forget that woeful sight of a beaten demoralized army that came rushing back humanity in the last throes of endurance, hollow-eyed, ragged, footsore, and bloody, the men limped along unarmed, but followed by siege guns, ambulances, wagons, and an aimless confusion. This is what these people are seeing. So you can imagine, just, just picture, just humanize this for a second. Mm-hmm. You lose these battles. You try to go out to fight Grant to save your city. You get absolutely astroglided. Now you're coming back and now you're completely demoralized. Mm-hmm. So if you're a citizen of the town, these are the people who are going to defend you. So yep. what are you thinking, right? The good news is Rebs now have four divisions of 30,000 guys to defend it because they had those two. So now you got Carter Stevenson, Jan, John Forney, you got Martin Smith, and you got John Bowen. Now Loring is gone. He's gone. So you can forget him. He's, he's, he's at the DQ in Jackson. He's gone, right? <laughs> I was going to say he's at the DQ right? somewhere. He is. He's got that discount, you know. <laughs> the, the Federals have three corps. 
So you get four division against three core. 35,000 guys with more on the way. By July 4th, Grant's going to have 70,000 guys in Porter's gunboats. Yeah. So just set the start how this is going to go, right? The difference, though, Rebs are going to really heavily fortify that city. They're going to be well dug in. They're going to build these redans, which are basically embankments, these V-shaped earthwork things, and things called redoubts, which are kind of like temporary forts. Yep. And they're going to use abatis, which are those sharpened sticks. They're going to stick in the, the approaches, which is kind of, in essence, 19th century barbed wire is what yep. it really is. So they're going to defend the city really, really well. They're going to set up parapets in front of the approaches. And what they're going to do, this is really the first real example of real hardcore siege warfare in, in, in the world. Mm-hmm. You, they're going to, and you mentioned earlier sharpshooters. They're going to have yep. sharpshooters throughout the parapets. That's going to be a, play a big part of this as well. What Grant's going to do is he's going to initially he's going to use that artillery to try to you know try to knock out those defenses. Artillery never knocks out defenses. You know you talk about D Day, World War II. Yeah, they had the guns pound those German batteries on those beaches, and the troops got there and nothing happened. I mean that, that's it doesn't it's more perception than reality. It's more yep. psychological yep. than anything. Yeah, many of those shots we'll find out ended up going into the city that torture the, the, the locals, mm-hmm. it was constant terror for those civilians in, in, you know, in Vicksburg. Basically, what's going to happen at this point is going to set up that, that stalemate. So both armies are going to sit there and they're going to stare. You guys are just going to stare at each other? <laughs> that's, that, that's what they're going to do. And they're going to be stuck just looking at the enemy, right? You're going to have gunfire erupting. And, it, and it's going to be a situation where they're going to be close where any movement is going to re- result in gunfire, yep. anything. They used to take a bayonet and they would put a cap on top of it and then they would yeah. stick it up really slowly just to see how quickly the gunfire would come. And then they would look for the shooter and try to shoot the shooter. Yeah, But there's that exactly. story where somehow some mule stumbled yeah. between the lines and got shot like a hundred times. I know, like the guy, the, the guy who that was recounting that story was like the mule just like, it was like, te- like it was like almost like 10 or 12 sharpshooters just opened up on this poor mule. And took I don't think he made it. Probably not. They probably ended probably up not. eating him. <laughs> no, probably not. So May 19th, 1863. So this is just a couple days now after Champion Hill. Sherman's 15th Corps. They're going to start to attack those redans and those redoubts we talked about. So yep. Sherman is going to attack what's called the Stockade Redan. This is a situation where he's got to deal with those abatis, those trenches, the whole deal on the way. So just getting there is a friggin' miracle, right? A lot of the guys actually made it, though. They made it to the trenches, and they stayed there. And you know what the Rebs did? They lit cannibals and rolled them down on Yeah, them. it Boom, was right? brutal. So finally, Sherman's guys lost like 600 men, and he finally says, I don't what the hell with this. Yep. So he's so he's realizing that's not gonna, that's going to work. A couple of days later, the 22nd of, of, of May, Sherman's going to try again. Now, this, this is an interesting story because – First of all, what's interesting is he's going to march on a road called the Graveyard Road. Yeah, and it involves is, all three. It involves McPherson and McLernan as well. It does. There are different parts of this little battlefield. But you're told to march on the Graveyard Road, which is kind of like every Friday the 13th movie. <laughs> They're going to go in columns of four down this road. Now, what's interesting is they took they asked for volunteers to be a group called the Forlorn Brigade, yeah. which oh. is basically instead of guns, they would take they were carrying wooden planks. And they were the guys who were going to put the planks over the redans, and they were going to use them to climb the parapets. Now, you can see how this one's going. So they're going to be in front. They're going to be carrying these things or to go over these obstacles, and it's going to be a complete and utter disaster. Most of these forlorn core guys didn't even make it close to the trenches. They were easy targets, got gunned down. So by 3 p.m. on the 22nd of May, 
Sherman, he's going to stop it. He's going to look at one of his staff guys and says, screw this. He's going to say, and I quote, this is murder. Yep. And he, he calls off the attack. So McPherson, to your point, they're doing these other assaults. So McPherson's attacking a place called the Great Redan. Yeah. It's so great, but they call it the Great Redan. McLernan's going to the Texas Lunette and the Railroad Redoubt, which is going to be interesting when we talk about the Railroad Redoubt here in a little while. Yeah. They're going to be doing their thing. Now, McLernan, it's an interesting sort. We talked about him before. Just to kind of go background real quick, Grant hates McLernan. Yeah, and McLernan hates I mean, hates he friggin' Grant. hates him. He hates him, right? You think about things you hate. I mean, so McLernan, he says, he tells the guys he's having some success at the Railroad Redoubt. Yeah, he's like, I need some more guys. He's he claims McLernan does. He got to the top of the parapet and planted the flag, but he needs more guys. Yeah, Sherman looks to Grant and goes, "You know he's full of shit, right?" Yeah, and Grant goes, "Well, you know, like, I, I have no choice. I I have to support him. So he's going to send troops from McPherson to support him. And of course, it ends up in a complete disaster. Yeah, their asses kicked. It, it's just this is how this whole thing is going. So yep." They sit and they recoup for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Three days later, the 25th of May, Grant's generals and his staff, they said, listen, we need to call a timeout, okay? We got dead all over the place. This place is starting to stink. It's 100,000 yep. degrees. Can we please call a truce and get these bodies out of here? Which is exactly like what we talked about with Kennesaw Mountain last, Cheatham Hill. last exactly. week. Yeah, at Cheatham Hill. Like the same stuff, it's happening throughout the Civil War. And this is back, you know, 1863, like a year before Kennesaw. And so they're having to go back because it's so warm out. They're having to go back. They call this truce to go back and get their dead because there were so many of them there. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you know, made it difficult to attack, especially where Sherman was, was the fact that they were having to walk over these dead bodies. Right. Like, because there were so many bodies cut down and then the other troops had to, they were, you were basically walking over the dead and wounded as you were trying to get up to these redoubts to take them. Well, think of the which psychological is again, like effect though, right? Exactly. I mean, they're, tell, they're telling you to go fight and go charge these, re, these redans and these redoubts. Yeah. And you're clogged climbing with dead rotting smelling bodies yeah i mean they had no choice to it but but just you know, speaking of misery and crap let's flip the coin real quick over to the other sides we got to talk about the vicksburg civilians at this point while this is yep. all going on like i mentioned before that a lot of the union artillery is overshooting these defenses and going into mm -hmm. the town these people are digging in these caves okay they're scared to death of this artillery the clay is such in Mississippi where you can dig these caves. And they're, they're, yeah. a lot of these people are digging these elaborate caves. Yeah, they're they have different room. rooms in them and they bring their furniture and stuff. And they're basically they're setting hanging, up like a house there. They're hanging pictures on the wall. Yep. Probably, you know, the dog's playing pool. They'll, 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 you know. <laughs> and so, and so but, but the other issue they have is they have to find food, yep. right? It's interesting because there are still some mark in the city. In there, the prices are going up like crazy. The rebel soldiers themselves are on one ration per day. And by June, by mid-June, it's going to be a quarter yeah, ration exactly. per day. Yeah. That same quote I read earlier about that same woman who watched the troops come in, yeah. she talks about it. So on May 28th, she writes, the siege continues. We are utterly cut off from the world, surrounded by a circle of fire. A fiery shower of shells goes on day or night. People eat what they can, what they can eat. Sleep when they can and dodge the shells. Yeah. So just put yourself in this position for a second, okay? You're helpless. You're completely vulnerable at these shells. You go out outside of your cave at your own risk at this point. Yeah. Um, the city is going weaker by the day. Also, communication in and out is impossible. It is. And they're right? having to print their newspapers basically on wallpaper. 
as well. Interesting thing. I had quotes from that woman too. Um, she's actually a northerner that's living in Vicksburg with, she married a southern guy. She's a northern woman, which I found really, really interesting. Well, she's got what her. she deserved. <laughs> Boston married. I hope she was from New York probably. probably. <laughs> she probably was a New Yorker. No offense to of our New York listeners. Boston, Boston woman <laughs> wouldn't have done such a thing. Just saying. As well, I was um, reading one account where um, the shells would stop just three times a day. Whether it was to let the the guns cool down, or the 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 guys that were doing their thing with the artillery, let them have a break. Eight a.m., noon, and eight p.m. They would stop for a little while, and they would get a break. Well, I mean, they weren't government employees. They, you know, well, yeah, or DQ employees. They needed to stand around for a while. <laughs> but, but you know, what, but what's, what's what's funny though is. You know, remember before about how Johnson promised that offensive? Yeah. Right? He was going to help him out. So yep. Johnson, he's calling for reinforcements during this time. He's going to get 9,000 more guys by the, by July. Mm-hmm. So Johnson's army is going to be up to 31,000 guys. He has no intention of doing an offensive. No intention. What he wants is he wants Pemberton to Kool-Aid man it through the Union defenses, yep. hook up with Johnson, touch base, you know, catch up, see what's going on. And then plan an attack on, on on Grant at that point and join forces. Meanwhile, this poor Pemberton going, well, Davis is telling me not to leave this friggin' city. Yeah. So I don't know what the hell you want me to do, you know? And there's no you way know, he could anyway because he's like, this... he's like he's like Cameron Fry and Fer- Ferris Bueller. He is. Right? I'll go, like, I'll, go I'll go, I'll go, go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. He'll keep calling me, he'll keep calling me. Exactly. That's what he was doing. You know? A, <laughs> I'm just picturing him in the car. Oh yeah, he's just <laughs> with his Red Wing shirt on. Yeah. I'll go, you know? I'll go, I'll go. <laughs> Which is actually perfect <laughs> because Pemberton's a Northerner, so that would work. That's true. Oh, there you go. Right. And so Grant, though, meanwhile, is also reinforcing. So his numbers are going to jump as well. He's going to get that Ninth Corps we talked about before, Mary <laughs> Park. From Park, he's he's going to get those guys. There you go. <laughs> it's important to mention John Park. He's going to get there in June with Stephen Hurlbut from this from Memphis. I told yeah. you he was going to be here. He, I he believed you. Okay, but but <laughs> but but Johnson is going to keep those troops for himself. He's going to, he's going to gather them, but he's yeah. not going to send them, and that's going to be a big deal for this. He never tries to help Pen, uh, Pemberton, so you know Grant. Now this is where it gets interesting, and this is one of my favorite parts of this whole siege thing. Grant knows that Joseph Johnson is reinforcing. He just knows, mm-hmm. right? And he's concerned about this because remember before he went to Jackson when Greg attacked him and Raymond because he was afraid of Johnson attacking him from the rear, yep. right? Yeah. Poor Savannah. He doesn't want to get hit <laughs> from the backside. Okay. So he's concerned that's going to happen. So he's going to actually send has some of his troops facing east towards Jackson just to be safe. Of course, that's never going to come. This is where it's interesting too because Grant. I guess we got to talk about this, right? Yeah, we do. We have this to talk where, about this. This. He, this is where this. This is part of the story where Grant had runs into a little bit of downtime. Yep. Okay. Three days of downtime, and he's going to go on an absolute bender. Okay, we're talking a full call me maybe situation. Okay, yep. he's going to have, who knows what happened or where it was, but he ends up getting completely hammered for about a three day period. Yeah, and he ends in up a in a tent. tent. They carry him to he a does. tent. Now, he, you know, it's like taking you out of the reliant mind on a Friday night, Mary. And so welcome to your carried, future. <laughs> oh, God. He gets so he gets he gets carried out of, of that. But what's funny is the staff tries to keep it quiet. They, now, since we're did. talking about it, it's obvious they didn't keep it quiet. Right? Well, no, no, they didn't. But the thing is with this story, like Miller talks about it and I think Groom talks about it. 
the lecture I listened to today that um, was from the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, which it's actually on YouTube. It's a really good lecture. The presenter talked about it too. So it's not like, I don't think it's a horrible thing to say about Grant. Like, I mean, Jesus, I'd probably go on a fucking three-day three bender too if I'd been at this since January. Shit's not working out and I'm seeing horrible stuff. I'm, But there was a story early on in the campaign after the Battle of Raymond. He came to his... John it was Park. It was not John Park. Stop it. So he goes I to core. <laughs> he goes to um, Colonel William S. Duff, who is his artillery chief, and he's going to be his artillery chief until the end of the war. The other thing that Duff was was Grant's bartender. So after the Battle of Raymond, Grant goes to him and says that he was very, very tired. He needed some whiskey. So Duff gives it gives it to him, and it's um, Sylvanus Codwalder who's in the tent with them. And he says Grant takes like three shots and then he goes to bed. And then Sylvanus does say, I didn't see him drink again until the siege began. And that's what this is referring to, this event that Darren and I are talking about, which is Grant's three-day bender. I think we can call it, right? Yeah, or as we call it for you, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. But, you know. Well, when one knows you. But, oh, God. Thanks for the good word. I appreciate it. (laughs) So, just so, so, so that happens, <laughs> but we're going, oh, it's fine, whatever. So we mentioned before real quick, as we try to get this back on somewhat topic here, he, Grant is afraid of Johnson's army growing in Jackson, moving west towards Vicksburg and affecting Grant. So McLaren, okay, now McLaren, we mentioned before, they don't get along. He's a pain in the ass. He just is, he right? Is, yeah. So, and what's interesting is he ends up going to the newspaper. He's saying a couple things. One, he's the man. He says when he was on that railroad redoubt there, okay, yeah. he would have won that if he had if he was better supportive of McPherson and Sherman. He says a lot of things. Of course, Sherman gets the newspaper. I don't know how the hell he gets the newspaper. He got a paperboy must have come by and yep. you know, whatever. Finds out so McLaren's talking smack. He gets it. So of course Grant finds out. And of course Grant's pissed, justifiably so. Yeah. And he wants to get rid of him. He's just sick of him. He just he just deals with him. So Grant's afraid of those troops from Johnston, right? He's going to tell Mc- he's going to send McLaren on a fun run. He's going to send him to send him to the Big Black River and defend that area in case Joseph Johnson attacks, because he thinks he he might. He thinks he probably will. He sends McLaren to go. Of course, McLaren is pissed and he complains. He doesn't want to do it. He tells Colonel Wilson, one of one of his regimental colonels, he tells him. He says. When he gets the order to go to Big Black, he says to he says to Wilson, "I'll be damned if I do it. I'm getting tired of being dictated to. Go back and tell Grant I said this." So you know, what Wilson does. He goes back and tells Grant, yep. and Grant is like, you know, he's you know he's 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 he, he ain't having it. He he's gonna go ahead and he's gonna fire McLaren at this point. And McLaren tries to defend himself yep. by saying if he was just blowing off steam. It was intense vehemence. That was the phrase he said. And what was great about this was after McLaren was fired, they used this as a joke it, in the camp. It becomes an inside like whenever joke. So, whenever somebody <laughs> got mad, they said, I have intense vehemence. So, they, so can I use that as my excuse on a Tuesday night when I'm really bitchy before we record? Blizzard machine got stuck. Yeah, it did. You know, but but, <laughs> but it ends up being it ends up being just picture today in today's society. Yeah, he's the boss. No one likes to get rid of him, and he blows steam. Yeah. And, and and that's what they, so he finally gets rid of McLaren, and that that's what's gonna gonna happen. So 
The siege is going to go on on the Union side, and they're looking for new ways to deal with these, these redoubts and these redans, and they can't figure it out. No. So June 1863, okay, this is when Lee's coming up through Virginia and going through, you know, Winchester and going through, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. This is all going on at the same time. The Federals have a great idea to come up with on their own. They're attacking the third Louisiana redan, okay, which is basically it guards the road, the Jackson uh, Jackson Road, that it's the entrance of Vicksburg. It's like Main Street into Vicksburg, right? They're going to try to attack it, but there's this redan. They decide they're going to dig this tunnel underneath it, and they're going to fill it with black powder, and they're going to blow it up. Yep. And they actually try to do it. And what's funny about it is the Rebs see them doing it, and they can't stop them because the angle of where they can't shoot the guns, that angle. Yeah. So they have to deal with it. So the Rebs know they're doing it. So June 25th, 1863, they get 40 feet under the Redan. They get there. They fill it with 2,200 pounds of black powder. So at 330, it goes off. Boom! <laughs> the entire thing goes off. Now, while they're doing this, they're firing artillery. And they're having the infantry fire. It's mm-hmm. a big like a Fourth of July, yep. the grand finale going off. Okay, Forty Fifth Illinois is going to charge that redam. By now, there's this big crater. It's it's twelve feet deep and forty feet wide, and of course, it's not going to work because it's the it's the way life is. Uh, what's going to happen is a lot of these rebs are going to the ones who when it goes off, a lot of the rebs are behind the redam, and it creates a perfect type of breastwork for them. So they're going to now they got a little bit of cover and they're going to start firing these 45th Illinois guys. So feds finally go, oh, God, and they finally back off. So the third Redan is going to be um, Louisiana Redan is not going to happen. So yeah. this is how this whole thing is. Early July 1863. Now it's July. Now, again, Lee is standing in line at the DQ in Gettysburg at this point. <laughs> OK, getting, you know, getting the um, the chicken and biscuits, you know, blizzard yeah. uh, with the Army of Northern Virginia. Yeah. So. Pemberton is sitting in his headquarters in Vicksburg, and he's sitting there. He gets an anonymous letter from his officers, and it says, either feed us or surrender us. Yep. Okay? He's like, whoa. Well, the other thing that they're dealing with, too, is they're dealing with a lot of illness as well, right? Like, these men are not well-fed, so they're going to be more susceptible to illness. His lines have slowly been thinning out, and he's at the point where it's like, we have to do something. And that's when they send, like, you either feed us or... We're done. We have to stop. Well, I mean, I mean, they're like, this can't go on forever. It's, it's not sustainable. So no. July 1st, Pemberton is going to meet with his generals, and they're going to talk about it. And the, the question comes down to the same question that it always, always comes out to. Yeah. Do we try to break out almost to a man, all that they're his subordinates say, F no. We're not yeah. strong enough to do it. We're on quarter rations. Okay, we have limited ammo. We cannot possibly get through this. Meanwhile, the citizens, Mary, in Vicksburg, they're in a horrible, horrible dire straits. They're left with almost no food. They're eating they're dogs. Eating, they're eating dogs. They're constantly attacked by Union shells. They're stuck listening to the Dave Matthews albums. They're in pure <laughs> hell, okay? They're in a horrible, horrible hell that I can And Justin Bieber albums, on, too. On anybody, exactly. So this is the situation as we approach July 3rd. Okay, July 3rd, Pemberton... He's like, well, I'm going to begin the negotiations of a surrender with Grant. So he's going to send John Bowen, who at this point is like, you know what? I'm so sick of this, but okay. John yeah, Bowen's going Bowen to go meet with Grant the Grant were friends prior to the beginning of the war, but right? But he's, he's, he's like, oh my God, 
He goes to the, he goes to meets with the union brass. And what's interesting about Bowen, and this is give him credit, he's a little manipulator. He tells both commanders the other one wants to meet with them personally, mm-hmm. and he's full of shit. They never said that. Well, clearly but Bowen doesn't want to do it. But he's the, he knows it's the only way this is going to get resolved. So he's like, you know, Grant wants to meet with you. And Pemberton, you know, Pemberton wants to meet with you. Pemberton is going to go to meet Grant. And of course, Grant's sitting there. He's puffing his chest with yep. cigar, his cigar. Yep. He goes, Un- unconditional surrender. About a million. You know? <laughs> Just like Fort Donaldson. That's what he does. Yeah. Well, Pemberton looks at him, gives him a finger, and he says, on that case, you'll bury many more of your men before you enter Vicksburg. Yeah. So it's like, well, okay. Bowen ends up being the adult in the room here, basically. He convinces them to keep talking. Because you can imagine what this is like. You got you got Grant doing his whole surrender completely. Yeah. Pemberton like, you know, I'll cut you, man. I'll cut you. That's how this is going on. Yeah. Bowen gets him to keep talking. Finally, they finally kind of agree. Grant is going gonna, is gonna to end up basically coming up with a deal with Pemberton to surrender Vicksburg. And they're going to agree to it. They're eventually going to come to terms. So. Yep. Grant's going to parole Pemberton's entire army after they surrender their weapons. They can keep their horses, but it's interesting. He makes them give up their slaves, yep. which is kind of an interesting story. Mm-hmm. So, so you look at Grant, right? So why did he simply capitulate? Because he kind of did. And really, it comes down to two factors. One, Johnston. Yep. He knows Johnston's still out there. He doesn't know what the hell he has planned. He knows he could be attacked. The other one is he doesn't want to have 30,000 prisoners carrying him around. No. He can't feed his own guys. He's like, well, this is the way it's going to be. So July 4th, 1863, the Rebels are going to leave Vicksburg with honor, in quotes. They're going to be led by Black Jack Logan. He's going to lead them out. And they're going to be on parole until they could be exchanged. So it basically means they can't fight. Well, it means like Hamilton, when you're on parole, when you're exchanged, you have to be exchanged for an officer who's equal to you on the other side, right? Right. And so they, they're basically going to sit, they're going to be on the sideline until they get exchanged. Yeah. A lot of these guys never come back. A lot of these guys go home and say, freak this, this is stupid. Yeah. They, and so Pemberton, and he also feels that he can get better terms on July 4th. Yep. He says, well, you know, I know, I, I know Grant, he's very patriotic. I think, I think July 4th, I think it'll be a big deal. So Vicksburg's going to fall. The union is going to go in. They're going to feed the citizens. That whole deal is going to happen. So the reaction in North, they're sky high, okay? Especially with me doing what he's doing in Pennsylvania at the same time, yep. right? This is the first good news Lincoln has had in a long time, right? Exactly. You're, you're coming off Chancellorsville and all this crap that's been going on. This is so great. So you want to talk about having a rail splitter in your pants, Mary. He now he's 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 feeling really good about himself. He, you know, we'll talk about his letter to him later on in a second here. He writes that thing to Grant where he says, The father of waters again goes unvexed to the sea. And then afterwards, and when the war is pretty much over, he says the fate of the Confederacy was sealed with Vicksburg. So he realized how important Vicksburg yep. was. Yeah, he did. Know? And he he writes Halleck. And I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. So so Lincoln writes to Halleck and he says, dude, we got it. We got Vicksburg. I've got word. Now, if Meade can pull that same shit with Lee, with the destruction of his army. Glad you said paraphrase, by the way. Just to clear that up. The rebellion is going to be fucking over. We got this. Okay, well, there's our E. Okay. <laughs> but, but what's interesting was Sherman, okay, he ain't done yet. July 4th. Sherman's not was- there. He takes well, it takes seven divisions, okay, and he's going to go attack Johnson's three divisions towards Jackson, and of course, on Johnson's takeoff. He's because yeah. so they're still trying to get those. This kind of continues on a little bit. So July 9th, that siege of Port Hudson's finally yep. going to end. 
Um, the Mississippi River at this point is wide open. I mean, the love boat's going right down the river yeah. now. There's no one stopping them now. Well, I think Eyes, we can do Isaac's... a whole separate episode on what Sherman is doing at this time because he's not in Vicksburg, you know. I think we could. No, no, he, he's, you know, he's, he's doing his thing. But in the South, Davis is absolutely crushed. He's absolutely crushed. Yep. But he's not willing to quit yet. The Confederacy split in two. At this point, he knows his army and his government has sustained a mortal injury, but he's not willing to quit yet. At this point, he knows. His only hope is that 1864 election now, yep. right? And it, it turns into a battle of will versus a battle of might. He knows he can't win the might battle anymore. It's going to be will. So he's going to put his entire stake on the 1864 election because he knows his realistic path to win by military might was, was going to be over. Who says Obi-Wan? And, you're my only what? hope. Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. <laughs> well, that was <laughs> exactly that, that. That was that was pretty much it. Lincoln mentioned his letter, and I can read his letter here. Yeah, he's going to write a letter to Grant. It, what's interesting is this is he really, really eats crow with this. He really, really does. does. Now we mentioned throughout these three episodes of Vicksburg, Lincoln more or less told Grant to do everything opposite of what he did, and Grant did the other thing, and yeah. it proves Grant proves himself right. Right. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read this letter that he wrote. All right. And I was going to paraphrase it. I'm going to light this up because I can't see anymore. Mm -hmm. But he writes his letter. I'm going to read this. So I'm going to, and I quote, he says, I do not remember that you and I have ever met personally. I write this now as a grateful acknowledgement for the almost in, inestimable service you have done for this country. I wish to say a word further. When you first reached the vicinity of Vicksburg, I thought you should do what you finally did. March the troops across the neck, run the batteries with the transports, and thus go below. I never had any faith except a general hope that you knew better than I that the Yazoo Pass expedition and the like could succeed. When you got below and took Port Gibson, Grand Gulf, and vicinity, I thought you should go down the river and join General Banks, and when you turned northward east of the Big Black, I feared it was a mistake. I now wish to make a personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. So any wives out there, imagine your husband saying this, okay? You were right, I was wrong. And so Lincoln really eats crow hard to Grant. I think this is his moment when he realized, I have to leave Grant alone. Mm -hmm. It's going to come to Sherman later at when, he gets to, when he gets to Savannah later in the next year. Yeah. But I think this is the moment when he realized, I have a guy I know can fight. And I can trust him. I can keep my, I can back off a little bit. And it wasn't long later that he's going to take command of the overall army. Exactly. And it's going to be the opposite to what he's going to write to Meade. Now, he's not going to send that letter, but we will talk about that in our next episode when we talk about the retreat from Gettysburg, that letter that Lincoln uh -huh. writes to Meade but never sends. It's going to be the exact opposite to what he says exactly. to Grant. So you can see for Lincoln, it's going to be a prove-it-to-be situation. It's going to be the Missouri. It's going to be a show-me state situation yep. right Show grant me. is ob grant obviously knows that he has lincoln support lincoln knows he has a guy who can fight yeah now he knows he has he knows he's going to win this war he knows that roughly that this is a situation where i can move forward i know what i can do i can i have a guy i can trust i got a guy in mead who just beat lee in pennsylvania mm -hmm. and he's feeling pretty good about himself so everything changes this weekend and it changes not because of gettysburg it changes because of vicksburg yeah and why can and people, Vicksburg, and honestly, I was just thinking Vicksburg happens because Stones River is a victory. Exactly. And so you follow these, these travels back, 
that we talk about how it all sets up. So again, Gettysburg weekend's coming up. It's a great weekend. No question about that. But Vicksburg is the key to mm-hmm. Pope Lincoln. Yep. It's the key that he must have in his pocket. And thanks to Grant and Sherman and all those guys, the key is now in his pocket. And now this is the Confederacy has sustained their mortal injury. It's going to allow Sherman to do his thing going through Atlanta, yep. going through Georgia, all of the Carolinas. And it's going to finally bring an end to the war. But more importantly, it's going to set up that election victory that's going to take away Jefferson Davis's final option to win this war. Yep. And it's all because of Vicksburg. Exactly. And and also just remember, like, Vicksburg is very, very important. But also remember that Vicksburg, as I said, is happening because of Stones River as well. These are all mm-hmm. flowing one into the other into the other. Without Stones River, I don't think you have Vicksburg. And without Vicksburg, you don't have Chattanooga or Atlanta. So all these victories in the Western theater are what is really helping bring an end to the civil war. And the Eastern theater is important too, but you know, with Vicksburg, they've got the Mississippi. They've got it. So just like that, everything, everything is in the right situation. So we are finally done with Vicksburg, Mary. We We finally did it. We finally did it. So what's next? So our next episode is going to be retreat from Gettysburg. And then we are going to be talking about Monocacy. And then we are going to be talking about First Bull Run. And it's funny, we're going back to First Bull Run because we're getting close to the one year anniversary of us beginning this podcast. Our second episode was Second Bull Run. I know a guy who crossed Bull Run not too long ago. Yeah. Walked across with a sword. Nice. So. <laughs> well, we got a lot of fun. We got a lot of fun things. We coming do. Yeah, in. we got a lot of we got a lot of fun things coming, coming up for you guys and stuff. We've got two books done for this year. We'll be moving on to our third one, which is Assassin's Accomplice by Dr. Kate Clifford Larson. So we will be reading that and we will be meeting about that seems a long way off, but we'll be meeting about that in September. It's going to be here before you all know it. So anyway, if you want to join our book club info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. And we'll send you the invite when we have that meeting in September. So I think that is it for Vicksburg. I think, we I think we're done. So hopefully we, do it. we it. did it justice. So hopefully we did. I think it's a great story. I think it's one that I think most people who studied the Civil War realize what a very underappreciated siege it was. I will, I will say this before. I'll say it again. The Vicksburg campaign was the single greatest campaign in American military history by Grant. It's not even close. Yeah, I think it gets overshadowed by Gettysburg. It does. Gettysburg, not to take away from Gettysburg, it's very important too. I think if not for Gettysburg, people would look look at Vicksburg, and I think I think um, there'd be a lot more people studying this battle and visiting that place than there probably is. So I think it's one of those situations. But again, it's where Grant really earns Lincoln's praise. And I don't want to say becomes Grant becomes Grant. He really realizes that he's someone who is going to help be the guy who's going to end this war, this pestilent war, as yeah. the movie says. But I think when you're studying it too, you know, because a lot of people think it's just a siege, but look at it from start to finish. Look at it from, you know, Chickasaw and see how these guys are evolving and learning from their mistakes too. And too, in, even in this episode that we've we've done tonight, like, Grant makes mistakes, you know, there's the soldiers say of these battles that lead up to the siege, like Raymond and Champion Hill and Jackson, and to like the assaults on the, you know, even after he's got into the siege mode, and he's doing the assaults on the stockade Redan and all that, that the soldiers are saying that it's a senseless cost of life. So even Grant is still being criticized, and he's still learning at this point. But I think like, to study it from start to finish, and not just the siege is the way to go. And both of us, like Darren has read Groom's book about Vicksburg, says it's excellent. I've read Miller's book about 
Vicksburg. It's excellent. I believe Tim Smith has a new book about Vicksburg, which is also getting very good reviews. So definitely check that out as well. I, 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 I will. I will tell you. I'm just going to say a plane, okay? And I know there are a lot of Gettysburg people. I know there are, and there should be. But if you're reading Gettysburg exclusively and you're not reading about Vicksburg, I don't know what to tell you. I just don't. Same here. I yeah. Like you need it. to study both theaters of the Civil War, and too. Like the other thing is as well. Like you can't just zero in on one battle and say it was the decisive battle. Like because if you look back at Stones River, if Stones River had been a Union defeat, there's no way they could have done Vicksburg the way they did nope. because they would have lost Nashville. So it's all flowing one into the other, into the other, as we constantly say. So don't look at these battles in silos. Look at them as how they flow all together. As Darren said on the Facebook Live on a Saturday, on last Saturday, the Civil War is a war of campaigns. And each campaign flows one into the other, into the other. So I think that wraps up episode 46 for us. I guess time to move on. So again, Mary, I will say once again, the pleasure was all yours. And it's a situation where it's again, as we come into this season, appreciate the battles you study and love the battles and embrace the battles. But step outside of the battles, look at some different ones because you'll realize how much they all affect the other ones. And as you study these other ones, you'll realize how, how important they are. So again, that's what's great about this. We get to study. And I've said many times, all battles matter. Mary. They do. All battles matter. So we are on to the retreat from Gettysburg next week. We're going to talk about Imboden and all the fellas and Kilpatrick chasing down the, uh, the Lee's army, trying to uh, yep. escape after the battle of Gettysburg. And we've got a bunch of stuff coming up down the road. So, Mary, have a great Canada Day. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you're going to have maple syrup and watch hockey all day. And everyone Probably. listen to Anne Murray. And um, the rest of us will get ready for July 4th here in the United States, which is um, Independence Day, which is um, which I celebrate as well. Day. Very good. All right. So any final words from you, Fincheroo? Well, thank you for being the awesome co-host you always are and bringing it every single one of these 46 episodes. I always learn something well, from you. And thank you to our listeners as well for all the support that you guys have given us. We really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We look forward to talking to you down the road. We'll see you on the other side. So we appreciate you listening and we look forward to talking to you as we always say on the other side. See y'all later. Peace out. Bye.